This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Today is February the 19th, 2008. The topic that I want to discuss today is atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, as far as problems in the intensive care unit, can almost be classified as a nuisance. It is common. It has multiple potential etiologies, all of which could be serious. And it is complicated by multiple potential therapies, all of which which have varying success. Atrial fibrillation is a common arrhythmia in the intensive care unit, second only to ventricular tachycardia. A study by Ryan Elton in Intensive Care Medicine in 2001 demonstrated that atrial fibrillation may occur up to 31% of patients in the medical, cardiac, or surgical intensive care unit. Rathor and colleagues in circulation in the year 2000 demonstrated that atrial fibrillation is associated with a significant longer stay in the intensive care unit. In-hospital mortality uh, was associated with acute myocardial infarction is higher in patients who have had atrial fibrillation, 25% versus 16% for those who don't have atrial fibrillation. As I said earlier, atrial fibrillation is associated with a variety of cardiac and extracardiac condition, some of which are chronic and some of which are acute. Some of these conditions which can lead to atrial fibrillation include surgery, especially cardiac or thoracic surgery, a pulmonary embolism or other pulmonary conditions, myocarditis, electrocution, alcohol consumption, thyroid disorders, or other metabolic conditions. We can also see atrial fibrillation associated with a history of hypertension or those patients who have coronary artery disease. Goldberg's and colleagues uh, in American Heart Journal in 2002 reported that 11% of patients presenting with an acute MI develop atrial fibrillation during their hospitalization. Also, valvular heart disease, especially mitral stenosis or mitral regurge, resulting in some left atrial dilatation, are commonly associated with the development of atrial arrhythmias. Among some non-cardiac conditions which can lead to uh, atrial fibrillation, Wang and colleagues in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2004 reported that obesity is an important and uh, 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 as a risk factor at the development of atrial fib. There is a uh, relationship between the uh, size of the left atrium and an individual's body mass index. There's a lot of definitions that get thrown around in regards to atrial fibrillation, uh, and some of the definitions need to be defined. There's the term lone atrial fibrillation, and lone atrial fibrillation is used to describe atrial fibrillation in individuals yet less than 60 years of age and who have no clinical or echocardiographic evidence of cardiac disease. Levy and colleagues in circulation in 1999 reported that 45% of patients who have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and 25% of patients who have chronic atrial fibrillation have no cardiac disease that can be identified. It's been hypothesized that uh, changes in autonomic tone appear to play a role in the initiation of atrial fibrillation, particularly in those individuals who have structurally normal hearts. Both vagal and sympathetic tone uh, may surge uh, in the uh, minutes immediately preceding the development of atrial fibrillation. Now, getting back to some of these definitions, there is a nomenclature for the uh, atrial fibrillation. And episodes of atrial fibrillation can be defined as either first detected, recurrent, paroxysmal, persistent, or permanent. Now, uh, recurrent atrial fibrillation occurs when a patient has two or more episodes of atrial fibrillation. That's considered recurrent atrial fibrillation. If atrial fibrillation terminates spontaneously, it is considered paroxysmal. So, the definition of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation is atrial fibrillation that initiates and then 
terminates spontaneously. Persistent atrial fibrillation is atrial fibrillation that is sustained beyond seven days. And permanent atrial fibrillation it occurs if cardioversion has failed or has not been attempted and the patient has been in atrial fibrillation for longer than one year. That's what we're calling permanent atrial fibrillation. Now let's discuss the pathophysiology as in anything um, regarding intensive care and ask what is the etiology of a particular problem in the intensive care unit. A safe bet is always the answer that it's multifactorial. What we uh, typically worry about in surgical patients is that the adrenergic outflow or adrenergic stimulation and inflammatory cascade are common among post-operative and critically ill patients. Um, and uh, the mechanisms for this are not completely understood. There is an upregulation of the angiotensin system, which may lead uh, to the development of atrial fibrillation as well. Pronounced increases in the white blood cell count have been uh, described as an independent risk factor uh, for the development of atrial fibrillation, particularly in patients who have undergone cardiac surgery, and that's been described by Lamb and colleagues in the Journal of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Anesthesia in the year 2006. Statins, which everybody seems to love nowadays, have an anti-inflammatory property, and the statins have been shown to suppress some of the electrical remodeling and animal models of atrial fibrillation. And the statins may reduce the incidence of post-operative atrial fibrillation. One potential mechanism for the ability of uh, statins to reduce the likelihood of post-operative atrial fibrillation is their inhibition of metalloproteinases, uh, oxidants, and mediators of inflammation. More on this can be found in the article by Marin and colleagues in the American Journal of Cardiology in 2006. But there's a long list of uh, things that can uh, lead to uh, atrial fibrillation. Mitral or tricuspid valvular disease, myocardial disease, it may lead to systolic or diastolic dysfunction, valvular abnormalities, pulmonary hypertension, systemic hypertension, pulmonary embolism, uh, intracardiac tumors, thrombi, coronary artery disease, pericarditis, amyloidosis, myocarditis, alcohol, caffeine, hyperthyroidism, pheochromocytoma, increased parasympathetic activity, increased sympathetic activity, subarachnoid hemorrhage, cardiac, pulmonary, esophageal diseases, and these are only to name a few. Now, atrial fibrillation can lead to a decrease in the cardiac output, and this is what most people are worried about, is a decrease in cardiac output or a decrease in uh, cardiac oxygen uh, delivery. Uh, and this decrease in cardiac output can manifest as a fall in the blood pressure and result in pulmonary congestion. Now, several mechanisms have been put forward uh, to describe the uh, adverse hemodynamic effects of atrial fibrillation. These include the rapid heart rate, the loss of the atrial uh, kick, uh, irregular ventricular rhythms, as well as some uh, neurohormonal uh, uh, mediators uh, such as norepinephrine and angiotensin II. Now, many people are certainly aware of some of the dangers of, uh, of elevated heart rate. Keep in mind that the uh, real determinant of cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. And one of the things that certainly affects stroke volume is the period of diastole. That's the amount of time uh, in which the um, heart is beginning to fill. And as you shorten that diastolic time, you're decreasing the diastolic filling time. And that's going to decrease the stroke volume or decrease the end diastolic volume, which will decrease the stroke volume. The other thing to keep in mind is that the myocardium is perfused during diastole. So as you're uh, increasing the heart rate, you're decreasing that diastolic filling time, which is going to increase, excuse me, decrease the end diastolic volume, which has a negative effect on the stroke volume. It drops it. 
the other thing that happens is that since um, uh, the diastolic time is decreasing, the period of time in which the heart is being perfused by the coronary blood supply is reduced due to that decreased uh, diastolic time. That uh, loss of that atrial kick people like to talk about is really uh, uh, more uh, accurately referred to as atrial systole. And in some individuals, this can be associated with a 20% reduction in the left ventricular stroke volume. And it could be up to high as 35% uh, reduction in the uh, left ventricular stroke volume in patients who have recently suffered from a myocardial infarction. Those patients who have a heart disease that associated with a diastolic dysfunction or they have a, a left ventricle that is uh, poorly compliant, they rely heavily on that atrial systolic kick for uh, filling of the left ventricle. And some conditions in which this can be aggravated even more are those patients who might be suffering from a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, those who have mitral stenosis, aortic stenosis, or severe cerebral vascular disease. Certainly one of the ones scarier um, uh, cardiovascular problems with uh, people who have atrial fibrillation is when they develop a rapid ventricular rate. So when you see somebody who has atrial fibrillation, the first thing you want to know is, is their ventricular rate controlled or not? Because you can get AFib uh, with rapid ventricular rate. Well, you'll see a ventricular rate running in the 160s and 170s, and clearly you know that that is not good for the patient. It is not good for their cardiovascular status, and it is a terrible thing for their heart. Um, uh, additionally, patients who have rapid ventricular response may actually see an increase in the activation of neurohormonal uh, vasoconstrictors, and this can result in additional increase in the vascular resistance or the afterload, and as well as coronary vascular resistance with a subsequent decrease in coronary perfusion, in addition to having the negative effects of that rapid ventricular rate. So let's break that down again. If you have AFib and somebody has rapid ventricular rate, all the scary things that are associated with that heart rate of 170 are in play. Decrease uh, diastolic filling time, decrease coronary perfusion, increase myocardial oxygen consumption in the face of a decreased um, um, uh, cardiac oxygen delivery. Add on top of that fire the fact that you have these increased neurohormonal uh, vasoconstrictors increasing the systemic vascular resistance as well as increasing the coronary vascular resistance. Let's take a brief time out. Now let's talk about the management of atrial fibrillation. The management of atrial fibrillation is really divided into three elements. First of all is control of the ventricular rate. Okay, so you can have somebody who's got AFib with a rapid ventricular rate. You need to control that ventricular rate. The second is trying to restore normal sinus rhythm to the patient. And the third objective is the prevention of thromboembolic complications. So let's outline that again. First thing to do is try to control the ventricular rate. The second thing to do is try to reestablish normal sinus rhythm. So you're trying to convert AFib back to a sinus rhythm. And the third thing is prevention of thromboembolic complications. So when you first go see a patient in the intensive care unit, you're called and they have new onset atrial fibrillation. It's a determination of actually how sick is the patient. Is the patient in extremis? Is their blood pressure 70? Are they in uh, florid pulmonary edema or acute heart failure? If you go see your patient and they're having chest pain, they're in pulmonary edema, or they've got that blood pressure of 70 over something, they really are the patients who are in that emergency um, 
uh, arm of the algorithm. And these are the patients who are candidates for emergency cardioversion. It has been my experience that um, when you're dealing with um, uh, younger physicians or house staff is that when somebody sees VTAC or VFib, we know the thing that we need to do is to cardiovert the patient and we need to do it quickly. I think where people kind of uh, make some gaffes, as that's the appropriate term to use, is that when you see somebody who's in atrial fibrillation or AFib with a rapid ventricular rate and they're hemodynamically unstable or clinically very symptomatic, is people seem to have a little bit of a difficulty deciding that that's a person who's appropriate for electrocardioversion. Now, if your patient isn't one of those ones that are an extremist, they're not having chest pain, they're not uh, hypotensive, they're not in uh, uh, pulmonary edema, then you've got a little bit of more time, but what you're going to focus then on is controlling the ventricular rate. So if they're AFib with a ventricular rate sitting in the lung 60s and lung 70s, your first priority, aside from the obvious airway breathing circulation, is try to get that ventricular rate down. Drugs that are good um, for the consideration of uh, controlling that ventricular rate are beta blockers, uh, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin. Now, when we're talking about the calcium channel blockers, there's a class of calcium channel blockers called the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. And these are drugs like the nifedipine. And these drugs have no effect on atrioventricular rate, and you don't use them to try to control ventricular rates. The calcium channel blockers that we're talking about are the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Now, in the post-operative surgical patient, beta blockers are a great drug because we may be dealing with drugs who have a high adrenergic tone. Now, when we talk about beta blockers and post-operative patients, it seems that beta blockers now are the cure for everything that ails you, including the heartbreak of psoriasis. But we know, and it's certainly um, a well-established fact over uh, the years, and it's been uh, demonstrated in the literature, that the use of preoperative beta blockers in patients who are considered certain risk factors undergoing uh, non-emergent, non-cardiac general surgical procedures have an improved um, uh, post-operative cardiac profile from complications if they're given beta blockers preoperatively as well as the beta as the post-operative period. And the reason for that is is that the beta blockers will, uh, if given preoperatively, will abrogate some of the, the body's response to that increased flowing of things such as epinephrine and norepinephrine that we see associated with injuries in surgery. So in the post-operative patient who is having atrial fibrillation, a beta blocker seems like a natural choice. Metoprolol is a reasonably good drug for this. It has an onset of action of a few minutes and it can be re- repeated up um, um, to about three times uh, in intervals of every five to ten minutes as long as the patient does not develop any hypotension or any uh, observable adverse effects. The other nice thing about metoprolol is that once you've got adequate control of the heart rate, then the patient may be transitioned uh, over to oral doses of metoprolol. Esmolol is a, another great drug uh, for uh, this use, particularly in the intensive care unit. Esmolol is also known as Brevablock. What I like about Esmolol is it's a, a reasonably uh, very short-acting drug beta blocker. It has a, a, a duration of action of really about 7 to 9 minutes. And it's very helpful in patients who are at risk for hemodynamic instability since the drug is eliminated quickly. And what I'll typically tell our residents is that, you know, if you're going to something like uh, Esmolol versus Metoprolol, Esmolol is a much, if you're going to make a mistake uh, in that beta block, somebody who may be hemodynamically labile and they could have subsequently hypotensive for this, you're not buying a long-acting drug with the Esmolol. 
And not everything that glitters is gold. And we learned in medical school that beta blockers have some problems. And one of the problems particularly is that uh, patients who have lung disease such as asthma or COPD, we can see problems with uh, bronchospasm. Therefore, if we have patients who have a history of a hyperactive airway disease or problems with beta blockers, we need to have another drug. And, and there's those patients who we give beta blockers to at appropriate doses. And I just had one of these just last week that despite giving um, appropriate or large doses of beta blockers, you simply do not get the clinical effect that you need to control the ventricular rate. And, and for that, then we switch over to some calcium channel blockers. Now keep in mind the calcium channel blockers we're using are the non-dihydropyridine uh, calcium channel blockers and, and uh, the one that's mostly used nowadays is tiltiazem. Now the standard dose of tiltiazem is a 0.25 milligram per kilogram dose uh, given IV typically over two minutes and this is typically followed by a 5 to 10 milligram per hour continuous infusion. A drug that we used to use uh, much more commonly before there was an IV form of tiltiazem was verapamil. And when I was a resident prior to tiltiazem having an IV form, we used to give verapamil quite a bit, but I will tell you that you uh, get quite a bit more hypotension with uh, verapamil than you do tiltiazem. When tiltiazem first came out in an IV preparation, the uh, drug reps would tell you that it doesn't cause hypotension, and I will tell you that that is not accurate, that you will get hypotension. Uh, even with diltiazem, but not to the same degree that you would see with the verapamil. A drug that is uh, not used as commonly nowadays uh, for a variety of reasons, but um, is um, not as sexy as it used to be, uh, is digoxin. The nice thing about digoxin is that when you look at the beta blockers and the calcium channel blockers, in addition to controlling ventricular rate, they actually have some negative inotropic effects. But digoxin will control the rate, but it actually has a positive inotropic effect. So for patients who uh, have heart failure or marginal blood pressures, uh, it's, a, it's a reasonably good choice. Uh, it does increase myocardial contractility and it does not result in hypotension. The problem is digoxin is not an ultra-rapid drug. If you give somebody like Esmolol or you give them cardiazem, you can expect a clinical benefit in the ventricular rate in a matter of a few minutes. But if you're going to do that with digoxin, you have to recognize that you're kidding yourself. This is not a drug where you're going to see a rapid clinical improvement. There's all kinds of ways uh, that we've been taught to load uh, digoxin. can be loaded intravenously. At a, uh, you know, again, this is going to depend on weight and, and people's renal function. But a typical uh, IV load in, in your traditional individuals can be something like a 0.25 milligram dose. IV every two hours up to about a 1.5 milligram uh, or it could be given orally. Again, patients who have kidney disease, uh, DIG should be used with caution. We have to follow DIG levels typically after the load. And uh, for that reason, it, it seems to be used, and, and like I said, for a variety of other reasons, it's being used with less and less frequency. It's, it's fun to see nowadays that uh, very few residents even know how to do a DIG uh, load. Amiodarone is a great drug. It's a wonderful drug for surgeons, and then I call it a kind of a dirty drug. It's uh, a wavy line drug. Um, much like vercanamide used to be, is that you know amiodarone is a drug that will convert virtually anything that has uh, scary wavy lines, whether it's atrial or ventricular. Amiodarone does cause slowing of uh, rapid ventricular rate, most of which occurs in the first hour of the administration following administration of the drug, although some other benefits of the drug may not be manifested for several days following administration.
As I said earlier, you know, we really want to avoid these beta blockers and uh, calcium channel blockers in patients uh, who are presenting with pulmonary edema or have severe left ventricular dysfunction because these are real these are negative inotropic drugs. Here's a big board question, put a few asterisks next to this, but the use of intravenous beta blockers, uh, the calcium channel blockers and digitalis should be used in caution with patients who have a history of pre-excitation and Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Uh, so again, the bottom line there, avoid beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and DIG in people with pre-excitation syndrome and WPW. And the reason why we don't use these drugs in patients who have a history of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome is because they can facilitate an antigrade conduction over the accessory pathways, and this could result in an acceleration of the tachycardia and basically a degeneration to ventricular fibrillation. So if a patient's got a WPW, they have a rapid, um, they're AFib with a rapid ventricular rate, you give a beta blocker or you give a calcium channel blocker or you give a DIG, what happens to the heart rate? it actually accelerates. It's, it's almost a paradoxical effect because you're pushing the conduction, you're accelerating the conduction down the accessory pathways. Now, if a patient has a pre-excitation type syndrome, then uh, for treatment of AFib, you can use intravenous percanamide, which is a great drug, as well as amiodarone. Now, how am I looking for this WPW? Well, what you're doing is you're, if you're looking at the EKG during a patient who has atrial fibrillation, uh, and they have accessory pathways. What the EKG may show are irregular wide complex tachycardia caused by ventricular pre-excitation of the accessory pathway. So what we typically would say is this also looks like somebody who has got um, SVT uh, with aberrant conduction. Um, and it almost looks like a VTAC type picture with, with a slower ventricular rate than VTAC. But if you see atrial fibrillation with a wide complex uh, tachycardia that looks like VTAC but actually isn't, then your best drug of choice there is either procainamide or an amiodarone. Now, um, here's a, a qualifier that if somebody has WPW syndrome, oral beta blockers or calcium channel blockers may be used for rate control as chronic therapy with careful monitoring. I will tell you that that is not something a surgical intensivist is going to do. I doubt that that's what uh, any uh, surgical or medical or anesthesiologist uh, who does critical care is going to do. That's probably going to be something that's going to be under a cardiologist who specializes in um, uh, arrhythmias. Now we have dealt with the control of the rate. Now we're going to focus on the cardioversion of the rate from an AFib uh, to um, a sinus rhythm. Remember we said that the three uh, elements of therapy for somebody with atrial fibrillation was control the ventricular rate. The next step was to get them from an atrial fibrillation with a controlled ventricular rate over to a sinus rhythm. And the third was controlling the complications, the thromboembolic complications. So this segment we're going to talk about the pharmacological cardioversion. Now we'd all like to uh, cardiovert somebody with drugs over electricity, or at least we most people would seem to rather do that. But the 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 reality of the situation is is that the success rates for overall uh, cardioversion is lower with drug therapy than it is with electrical cardioversion. And the two drugs that are used most frequently in the intensive care unit for pharmacological cardioversion are uh, amiodarone and percanamide. There was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine last year it stated the conversion rate of atrial fibrillation to sinus rhythm during amiodarone load is only about 30%. Now, amiodarone is often 
often used to maintain sinus rhythm after cardioversion in patients who've had atrial fibrillation. And amiodarone is also a great drug used for the management of ventricular arrhythmias. I like amiodarone a lot. It's got several advantages to it. Low um, acute adverse effect profile and a neutral effect on mortality in patients following myocardial infarction and in the presence of structural heart disease. Uh, but those who are using it long-term, there are some significant uh, uh, toxicities that one needs to be aware of. When one administers amiodarone, uh, there are some things about it is that you don't want to shake it. It will actually kind of foam on you, and it's for this reason it's not actually in preload syringes. It comes in little glass ampules you have to draw up. Um, I'd refer to ACLS because there are varying doses, but at least in this in this context, we're talking about atrial fibrillation, uh, and in the case of atrial fibrillation, it's administered as a bolus of about 150 milligrams given over 10 minutes, and then the drip rate for amiodarone uh, occurs as a drip at 1 milligram per minute for about 6 hours, and then 0.5 milligrams uh, per minute for about 18 hours, and then the patient's eventually converted to uh, oral amiodarone. Amiodarone may cause hypotension, particularly uh, if patients have a history of heart failure or left ventricular dysfunction, and amiodarone is nice because you can switch over to an oral dose. Now, when you are using amiodarone, it's a good idea to get some thyroid and liver panels as well as a chest x-ray. Uh, patients who are uh, maintained on amiodarone for a long period of time can have some problems with uh, their pulmonary function tests, diffusion capacities, uh, it can cause an interstitial um, uh, pneumonitis, bronchiolitis, obliterans, uh, ARDS, and as well as lung masses. Now, the uh, antiarrhythmic effect of uh, amiodarone atrial fibrillation may not be as rapid as we would like it to be, uh, particularly when we compare it to something like uh, um, the um, use of amiodarone and something like V-fib or V-tac, but the antiarrhythmic effect of uh, amiodarone and AFib is, may not be apparent for up to 8 to 24 hours after the administration. little side fact that you need to know is one of those uh, fun facts on rounds. It's nice to pimp people or drug interactions, and amiodarone potentiates the effect of a warfarin or Coumadin. It will raise your INR. So if you are using amiodarone on somebody who's on Coumadin therapy, uh, you need to uh, be mindful of this and reduce the uh, dose of the warfarin. Other drugs that amiodarone increases the uh, uh, levels of are, are digoxin as well as cyclosporin levels for your transplant patients. Not everything that glitters is gold. All drugs have adverse effects, and on amiodarone, those will include bradycardia, hypotension, visual disturbances, nausea, constipation, as well as phlebitis at the site of injection. A problem that is, uh, seems to be uh, occurring or being diagnosed with greater frequency or certainly an awareness is prolonged QT interval. Amiodarone can be uh, used with a, a low risk for the development of uh, torsades in patients with a prolonged QT. There was an article by a guy named Borpirian in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in 1997. It was a meta-analysis of four trials and it involved 738 patients who had an MI and LV dysfunction treated for at least a year. Low-dose amiodarone in those 738 patients caused no cases of torsades. Another great drug uh, for the use of conversion of uh, atrial fibrillation to a sinus rhythm is procainamide. It's, cl it's classified as a class 1 antiarrhythmic. Uh, let you look up the doses. Uh, giving doses makes me um, more than paranoid. Um, but um, things that are typically used uh, as um, indicators to stop the administration of procainamide is the development of hypotension or widening of the QRS complex by uh, more than 50%. 
And when you see either one of those two things, you need to uh, terminate the bolus or infusion of percanamide. Percanamide is a drug that can prolong the QT interval and lead to a proarrhythmia state. And percanamide is a negative inotrope and it does cause vasodilatation, which does limit some of its applications in the ICU. You can follow uh, percanamide levels, both procan and its metabolite uh, um, um, N-acetylpercanamide, also known affectionately on the lab sheets and the order sheets as NAPA. So typically when you use procanamide, you're drawing both pro, what we call procan and NAPA levels. Uh, and it's uh, cleared through the kidney. So this is something you're monitoring, particularly in patients who may have um, uh, decreasing or altering renal function. Procanamide can also result in uh, um, a suppression of the bone marrow. Things like cholestatic jaundice as well as a lupus-like syndrome. Here's a question uh, that I'll certainly uh, have asterisks. Procainamide is the drug of choice in patients with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome who present with atrial fibrillation. So let's set another way. A patient uh, with Wolf-Parkinson-White presents with atrial fibrillation. The drug of choice is procainamide. Good. We would like to be able to convert the rhythm um, with drugs, but sometimes that simply doesn't work, and then we have to go to electricity and direct uh, current cardioversion uh, works and uh, has a high uh, acute efficiency in converting people at an estimated rate of 67 to 94%, which is much better than drug therapy. The other real big advantage of electrocardioversion over pharmacological cardioversion is that it is immediate, and it results in an immediate improvement in uh, the LV uh, ejection fraction as well as the stroke volume. Those of us who have been around intensive care units know for a while, though, is that um, you'll have somebody electrically cardioverted and they can uh, basically revert back into their bad habits of going back into atrial fibrillation. And the likelihood that you will get long-term cardioversion uh, in somebody who is electrocardioverted is basically inversely related to the duration of the AFib before the cardioversion as well as the left atrial size. So if somebody's been in atrial fibrillation for a week and they get cardioverted, they're probably not going to remain in sinus rhythm as long as somebody who only went in AFib 24 hours ago. The other real element of that is what was their size of their atrium on the echocardiogram. Somebody with a dilated left atrium, again, they're more likely to revert back into atrial fibrillation. If cardioversion fails, um, patients should certainly be premedicated with an antiarrhythmic uh, prior to repeating the cardioversion. And we have different types of waveform now defibrillators. In the day, we only had monophasic waveform defibrillators. Now we have this biphasic waveform defibrillators. And the biphasic waveform defibrillators are more effective in cardioverting atrial fibrillation than are the monophasic uh, defibrillators. Now, if somebody's in atrial flutter, they're usually uh, easier to cardiovert at 25 to 50 joules for atrial f- um, uh, flutter, but somebody who's in atrial fibrillation typically require higher um, um, doses at basically 100 to 200 joules. What about those patients who are obese? Well, obviously patients who have higher uh, body, ma- body mass indexes, or indices I should say, uh, require higher energy levels. Um, and those patients who have had atrial fibrillation for a longer period of time and his atrium is enlarged, again, are going to need uh, more likely higher energy levels. Now, just because they're getting cardioverted does not necessarily mean that we're going to see a troponin release. There's been a couple studies that have failed to substantiate that 
um, even using very high energy levels of defibrillation up to about 1,370 joules uh, resulted at troponin on the release from cardiac myocytes. A rare complication of cardioversion occurring in 1.2% of those cardioverted is the development of pulmonary edema. This can occur uh, what's felt to be related to um, stunning of the heart and it seems to be independent of the amount of energy that was used to cardiovert the patient. Now again, applying electricity to somebody uh, has its drawbacks, they're obvious, but DC cardioversion uh, can be complicated by the development of uh, ventricular fibrillation, bradycardia, uh, tachycardia, ST segment elevation, uh, ventricular dysfunction, hypotension, pulmonary edema, as well as uh, uh, embolism. When we're performing the cardioversions, um, we should be performing these in the synchronized mode. And when, what does that mean? It means that the um, direct current is being delivered during the ventricular depolarization. Um, shock, when you shock somebody during repolarization, the shock uh, on a T wave may result in the degeneration of the atrial fibrillation into ventricular fibrillation. Not good. Also, the electrolyte status should be normalized uh, when possible before cardioversion to limit any proarrhythmic uh, complications. So if somebody is, um, you know, they're, they're not the emergent type where we talked about where they're in pulmonary edema, having chest pain, cardiac failure, the pressure is not 70, but um, their ventricular rate is controlled, uh, they're not... Uh, symptomatic and we're trying to convert them back from atrial fibrillation to sinus rhythm, correcting things like their calcium and potassium and so forth prior to cardioversion is appropriate. Interesting fact that uh, uh, bradycardia is um, or tachycardia is occurring at about uh, a fourth of the cardioversions. If the patient ha is having a pacemaker, uh, again, these are probably, uh, again, this is not an emergent cardioversion, but more of an elective cardioversion. These are situations where you're probably going to have cardiologists involved, but again, using the lowest energy necessary uh, should certainly be used, and the electrodes should be placed in the AP position at least 12 centimeters from the pacemaker generator. The third element we talked about from atrial fibrillation, let's go back and review it. We said the first element was controlling of the ventricular rate. We said the second element was the um, trying to converge from atrial fibrillation to a sinus rhythm. And the third element is the prevention of thromboembolic complications. That's the element we're going to talk about now, the thromboembolic complications. Anticoagulating someone, or anybody for that matter, is a reasonably um, complicated process, and it has uh, uh, potential complications. And there are those groups of patients who have both relative and absolute contraindications, particularly in a surgical population. A patient may have be a fresh post-operative place patient. They may have traumatic brain injury. They could have undergone spinal um, surgery, uh, and therefore we need to evaluate which of these patients are appropriate for anticoagulation. Some comorbidities uh, that increase the complications include somebody who's postoperatively, they may have had a stroke, hemorrhage, they could have platelet disorders, they could have renal or liver uh, failure, they could be an ARDS, or they could be a trauma patient. And therefore, the uh, clinician at the bedside must evaluate each of these clinical scenarios and, and try to weigh what are the risks and benefits of anticoagulation for each individual patient. Certainly one of the things that uh, we've seen frequently is in a trauma setting is an elderly patient who has atrial fibrillation and they're, you know, they're in their late 80s, they're... Uh, uh, they may have a degenerative neurological disorder and they're put on, or just tremors or just weakness, and they're put on an um, um, anticoagulant uh, for atrial fibrillation and they fall out of their wheelchair or fall down the stairs or just fall from a standing situation and they come in with an intracranial hemorrhage uh, secondary to a traumatic brain injury and they have life-threatening life and life-ending intracranial bleed 
from uh, the anticoagulation. If the atrial fibrillation is greater than 48 hours of duration, or we don't know how long the patient's had atrial fibrillation, or the patient hasn't been anticoagulated for at least three weeks, um, the uh, cardioversion can be performed. But after you roll out that there is no thrombus uh, in the left atrial app- uh, appendage, and this is typically done by uh, transesophageal echo. Now, this is clearly uh, in a stable situation. If the patient is, as we said, hemodynamically unstable or having chest pain or shock or pulmonary edema, then you need to uh, proceed to immediate cardioversion without the echo. But uh, certainly one can initiate uh, intravenous unfractionated heparin or subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin at a therapeutic level at the time of the emergency cardioversion. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a really good fact that I think many people may overlook that you're, you know, you're dealing with an unstable cardiovascular situation. You don't have time to get the echo. Fine, do the cardioversion, but at least anticoagulate the patient if they have no uh, contraindications. Arnold and colleagues in the Journal of American uh, College of Cardiology back in 1992, and I apologize for this mispronunciation, but Neccarelli and colleagues in the American Journal of uh, Cardiology um, in uh, 2000, both of those looked at uh, the risk of um, thromboembolism uh, following a cardioversion for either atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. And in those studies, they found the risk of thromboembolism at the risk of about 1% to 5%. Now, uh, Berger and colleagues in a, a really large study uh, done in 1998 and reported in the American Journal of Cardiology looked at 32 studies, and they found that more than 80% of the thromboembolic uh, events occurred during the first three days. 98% of them occurred within 10 days of cardioversion. So if you're thinking that you're going to cardiovert somebody, and then in a matter of minutes they're going to throw a clot, um, that's just um, uh, not an accurate um, picture of what can happen. You, you can be throwing clot for uh, several days uh, following the uh, cardioversion. And, and the real reason for this is that even after successful cardioversion that the atrium really doesn't come back online immediately. It is somewhat impaired for hours, even weeks, um, depending on how long the patient had atrial fibrillation prior to the cardioversion. And it's really recommended that even following cardioversion, all patients should be anticoagulated unless there's a significant contraindication. And this anticoagulation uh, should continue for at least four weeks after successful cardioversion, and perhaps even longer in patients who have a high risk profile of uh, having thromboembolic complications. So that's a, uh, a real basic rundown on atrial fibrillation, uh, something that we see very commonly in intensive care units. And uh, basically there's a, a real outline there of how to approach that acutely from uh, controlling the ventricular rate, trying to convert back into sinus rhythm, and then uh, a brief discussion there about what do we do about anticoagulation both before and after uh, electro or pharmacological cardioversion. I provided a few doses, uh, though I wouldn't recommend using those doses. I would certainly make sure that you check all your doses from your uh, drug references uh, prior to administration of any medication. And I would also recommend that you perhaps familiarize yourself with um, uh, the uh, guidelines put forth by the American Heart Association. Uh, And those are what um, Advanced Cardiac Life Support is built upon. You can get those actually online from uh, uh, circulation, um, uh, which is um, on the American Heart Association's website, and they make those free to uh, anybody. Once again, my name is Jeff Guy. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds.